This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to this week's episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. Before we get to it, we wanted to say a big thanks to Gantt for supporting this podcast. As you probably know, Gantt are an American lifestyle brand with lots of amazing clothes, and their particular speciality and heritage is making the perfect shirt. In fact, they've been making shirts for the past 70 years, and they have a really timeless classic style that I'm personally a big fan of. They're supporting this podcast as they're passionate about learning and curiosity. As part of their mission, they've created a new series called Couple Thinkers, which features former Late Late Show presenter Craig Ferguson and his wife Megan. They've set out to meet a range of really interesting people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Ariana Huffington and John Ronson to get their questions answered about anything from the cosmos and sustainability to the science of aging and getting the right work-life balance. You can check it out on gantt.com forward slash couple thinkers and YouTube. And now to this week's podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. Welcome, Darren, to London. We are really here, which is an important thing to say at the outset. Um, Darren really is the father of virtual reality, and reading his new book, The Dawn of the New Everything, it's been a very interesting journey for me, a bit of a VR virgin, if we're honest, and Jaron was slightly upset by that notion in the green room before uh, today's event. (laughs) Before this, as as something of a a VR virgin myself, uh, and only seeing this via my children walking around with weird masks on, um, uh, it's very interesting to hear Jaron, who is not only a pioneer of VR, but also has maintained a voice against the mainstream of Silicon Valley, or at least part of the mainstream of Silicon Valley, which makes you, Jaron, such an interesting thinker. And also the notion that VR is not simply an extension of Web 2.0 and of social media, and that those companies that may wish it were or will be uh, should maybe think a little bit harder about what they're actually trying to produce. So, Jaron, welcome to London. Thank you so much uh, for coming. Thank you. Uh, You head up, just to explain to the audience who maybe haven't um, uh, met you uh, before or seen you speak before, you head up Microsoft's Research Lab for Virtual Reality and Mixed Reality, and also, Jaron, will touch on the differences between those things and how those uh, will help. Uh, You've been named as Time's Top 100 Most Influential, and his books, of course, things like I Am Not a Gadget, have been incredibly influential in the debate we are all having, uh, whether it's in the media, uh, in society, about the role of technology in the life we're going to live. Um, 
Sharon, I know you've often spoken about this, but it is absolutely fascinating um, about you. Could we start off with um, your, your childhood and your young life and your entry into this, this world so early on um, uh, before really anyone had, had, had really thought about where we are? Tell us a little bit about your family life and, and how that, how that uh, developed into a, an interest in VR and all those things. That's a, a small question. It is a small question, but this, these are all very, <laughs> very small questions. Focused yes. and, oh gosh, how do I start? Well, um, I grew up in a little town in near the border of the United States and Mexico, near El Paso, Texas. My parents uh, were both European Jews. My, my mother was a survivor of a concentration camp, and my father... Uh, had uh, lost most of his family in pogroms in Ukraine. And uh, I think they just wanted to get as far away from the scary world as possible. Um, So I grew up as a really weird kid out of place. I went to school on the Mexican side, so I actually attended Mexican elementary school. I used to just take a bus across every day before there was that big, beautiful wall. Uh, (laughs) And it was a charming place. Um, my mother then uh, died when I was small in a car accident, and I was um, very profoundly traumatized, and I, was, um, I felt so lonely. I felt like just a kind of deep black loneliness, and uh, part of how I found my way out of it was with these fantasies of ways to reach across to other people's hidden minds that were hidden inside these funny sacks of skin, these heads, you know, and I... I was particularly moved by surreal art. I, I used to stare at Hieronymus Bosch, and I thought, you know, what an astonishing thing that somebody can create this artifact of something that's not real, but indicates something that is real mentally, something internal. And um, I, I was just utterly fascinated by that as a path towards recovering lost connection, you know, and... Um, how did, that, how did that lead on, Jan, yeah. to, a, to a sense of technology could allow you to, to bridge? It's fascinating you talk about loneliness, but that well, notion of getting into almost that surreal world. What happened was when I was about, I was in college early, I was kind of a precocious kid, and when I was, oh, I don't know, I, a, a young teenager, I ran across some of the... Uh, Reports of a, a researcher named Ivan Sutherland. And uh, just has anybody heard of Ivan Sutherland here? Okay, well, he's somebody you should know about. Uh, he invented computer graphics, he invented interactivity on a screen so that that little thing in your pocket is essentially a descendant of his PhD thesis, um, which, which was uh, in 1962. And so Ivan, in the late 60s, had made the first, uh, what we would call today, a virtual reality headset. Um, he used different terminology, but, but similar. He said that he was building a bridge to a virtual world, which is a term that actually came from art criticism, believe it or not, from Suzanne Langer, an art theorist from earlier uh, in, the, in the 20th century. 
And so I read this and I was so excited because I thought, wow, if you can just make an arbitrary world, that's this thing. That's this thing I've wanted. And there wasn't an internet then. So I used to just run to strangers on the street and show them this journal article. And there's just like this really awkward 15-year-old kid. And I'm just like, stop it. You have to look at this. We're all going to share our dreams through this computer thing. People are like, okay, okay. Like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and um, so uh, I... I, uh, I uh, just a little while later, it's actually only a few years later, in my early 20s, I actually started the first what I called the virtual reality company. And I thought virtual reality would be the term that made it social, like consensus reality. And if it was social, then people would see each other. They could turn into fantastic birds and other creatures. And then they would have this shared experience that might be a new frontier of connection. So that's, that's what it was for me. Uh, but of course, we yes. had to pretend it actually was this industrial operation, which it also was. But yes. that was always the core for me. Tell me those early days. You say I, I started in this, but of course, it wasn't like Silicon Valley looks like it does now. What was Silicon Valley like in those early years? And when you say you started, how? I mean, this is, as you say, an era when we were still grappling with the notion of the first internet and just simply being able to look at information. That leap into virtual reality was still a long way off. Yeah, well, when I showed up in Silicon Valley, which was right at the start of the 80s, um, it was already there. It was already called Silicon Valley. Um, Apple and Microsoft were both two or three years old. Um, They were known. Um, There was already a sense of excitement, a sense of the future. And I fell in with uh, what we called the hacker crowd, the the, the, uh, the kids who were good with computers who were creating this new society. And I have to say the feeling was very different back then. There was a kind of a sweetness to it that I think is lacking now. And in fact, there was a disdain for money. Uh, People who were seeking money were held in contempt. I mean, I remember one of my first conversations. uh, I had run into uh, Steve Jobs and some people who worked for him, and then I was talking to a bunch of hackers, and I was like, ah, Jobs, you know, he tried to work at Atari on this chip. He didn't get anywhere, so he decided to do this stupid money stuff instead. And to them, it was this incredible (laughs) fall from grace. Being a successful entrepreneur was like this lesser thing that somebody who couldn't hack would do just to be close to the real stuff, the real hacking, you know? And so it's a very different... It it was was a different culture. It was very hippie-ish, which I guess Mm. I still retain. Um, It was... uh, (laughs) Um, it was uh, very experimental. It was very optimistic. It was very silly. It was very young. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember, uh, the, the, the way I ended up starting a company was not with any vision of, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. It was more, um, oh, God, it, it, it'll, I'm afraid you'll get the wrong impression if I tell you these stories. Cause you have to get, you know, get a balanced impression from reading the whole book. But one, there was one all-night, 24-hour sort of horrible greasy spoon eatery where we'd all gather, and it had electrical outlets. And so you know how today you go and you work in 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 a place with your laptop? Well, in those days, the computers were huge. They were um, like if you look at some of these speakers on this array here, the computer monitors were as big as two of those together, and we'd actually haul these giant things in and then take over a whole table just to set up one computer and then work through the night. And so there was this, uh, the guy who ran this place would be behind his counter with this spear trying to spear the rats. And he would, <laughs> he would shriek like an ah! and um, 
we started rooting for the rats, and they got names. They were never caught. And so <laughs> what happened is uh, we were talking about all this virtual reality stuff, and I was already building. I had, I had uh, made a successful video game, so I had royalties from my video mm-hmm. game. So all the money went into building virtual reality prototypes, but without any business or anything. It was just this garage project. And so one day one of my friends said, you know, if any of us put half the effort that this guy puts into spearing the rats, we could, like, build these companies. Like, why are we just sitting here? And so it was actually this rat spearing thing that inspired us to, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You've talked as well about, in your early career in virtual reality, this this sort of hippie notion, this maybe left notion. But then interestingly, you have been very critical of what maybe some slightly more ignorant of the systems that are used, of things like Wikipedia and also open source. How, how does that fit into this picture? That well, there's you, this know, sort of, you know, because Wikipedia was, was meant to be this really nice thing. You know, it is. Jimmy right? Wells is a nice guy. He tried his best. He was kind of just, you know, being able to kind of build a system that, that allowed people to share expertise. Um, I have to say that at this late date, when we're seeing the democracies of the world slowly succumb to tribalism and turn into autocracies as and as we're seeing that my old criticisms of the wikipedia and open source seem quaint don't they i mean i i but at the time um what i was concerned with with wikipedia was the promotion of a uh uh it's, it's the erasure of the personal point of view. Like, instead of having an author, you say, no, this is the official article describing this topic. So there's a thing called the Encyclopedia Britannica and an Encyclopedia Americana. They might have different articles for the same topic, but they announce their perspective. And to, this notion of a global perspective is a fiction and dangerous in many fields. Uh, it, the Wikipedia also had the effect of shutting down creative communication in some fields where there could be objectivity. For instance... The, practically the day the Wikipedia took off, a whole bunch of people who were doing really creative presentations of math online suddenly lost traffic. And then we ended up with this very nerdy sort of standard math resource that I think excludes people. So I thought it was um, a well-intentioned experiment with some good qualities, but also something of a failure. I should say that shortly after my criticisms were published, both of the founders of the Wikipedia endorsed them. So it's not like I was some sort of weird critic off on the is side. There, is, there, is there weirdly, Jan, a, a tendency towards monopoly? So Wikipedia just starts sucking out other, or, or, yeah. and Google and Facebook, this tendency to monopoly, which is was oddly contradictory to the world you started off in, when there's this notion of let a thousand ideas flourish and you yeah. know, people can pick them. Yeah, so um, digital network effects do create these very intense monopolistic um, outcomes and um, it's totally avoidable uh, but you know and, and this is actually where the economics comes in so if uh, if your only business model is to manipulate people then what you you're, you're, uh, you must engage 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 if your business model is selling them something then you might find some niche where you engage only some of them uh, in a very special way that's highly profitable you don't have to be monopoly anymore so the sort of strange thing is that if we deny people access to a normal marketplace of goods and services and demand that they function within the behavior modification loop empire you, you naturally will create monopolies because that's, that's the only um, avenue available to them you sometimes feel a little bit of a lonely voice if you look at Amazon, Google, Facebook, and their power and their ability to constantly be telling us what it is we need and then to predict what it is we might need in the future. 
or do you still feel optimistic? Well, let me be clear about something. Um, this, this business model that I'm decrying is actually a rather rare one. So um, if you believe that there's a top five big tech companies to be concerned with, um, only two of them engage in this. So Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft do a little bit of it, but they primarily sell goods and services, and they're all somewhat diversified. It's really uh, Google and Facebook, and face, Facebook primarily, uh, who do this. And, and the result of that is they've had very little success diversifying, so they're, they're massively addicted themselves to their own addiction engine. So you, you, when you have a company that's like 90% making their money from this one thing, mm. um, it's a little troublesome for them in the long term, I would think. Um, there are other companies that do this, uh, like uh, Twitter, Snap. Um, but uh, I have to say, like, uh, Twitter is wobbly. It's not even a great business plan. I mean, it's really a very localized – I mean, Facebook is a big company with a lot of profit, but it's, it's a very singular thing. Uh, there are plenty of reasons to be interested in um, – like you could be upset for legitimate reasons with all the other companies, uh, but that's but they're not for this reason. Um, uh, this mm. is you yeah. know, and like there's a little bit of this that happens in the Amazon sales machine, the way it runs its reviews. It's doing a little bit of that to sell stuff, but it's so minor. But it's starting to nudge people, isn't it? Towards hmm? it's starting to nudge people towards making different choices. If you like that, it, you would like this. Yeah, Why it's, you it's buy nudging some? them to yeah. buy a different model of TV or something. This yeah. is not going to tear civilization apart. Right. You know, so I, so as far as this discussion is going, yes. there, you can there are I'm sure legitimate criticisms of the other ones, but this is really very specific to, to just a handful of companies. Tell us a little bit about virtual reality and mixed reality and virtual reality, and give us some views about the way this is going to develop because that is the optimistic message that you have yeah, so, in terms of where VR can kind of challenge it. Which I must admit, I didn't understand until reading. Um, your books and some of your interviews that, that you believe that VR can be a solution to some of these but rather than just an exacerbation of some of these issues. I can't believe you've never had occasion to try it. No, I know. That's terrible and I'm you're embarrassed this, and I'm going to now go off. You're this big wig at the BBC. The BBC <laughs> has this big VR effort. We do. You haven't? Yeah. Get with it, man. I'm too, I'm too boring in doing economic spreadsheets. So I need to, yeah, I'll do it. But anyway, yeah. Okay. How, actually, how many people in here have done VR Pretty regularly, not just once, but pretty regularly. Oh, actually, that's, that's a kind of a small that's number. That's a small number. You're in a Britain wow. now. We're still di- horse and carts outside, Danny. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I mean, but the audiences are literate, and so in the U.S., all the hands would be up, and yeah. then I would, I don't know, I, uh, mention E.M. Forster and know what, would, know what, I'm, what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, I mention E.M. Forster, by the way, because in... Uh, Something like 110 years ago, he wrote a novella called The Machine Stops that essentially described the the dilemma we're in, the one I just described, uh, with remarkable clarity so long ago. So if you want a a prescient warning, uh, go to your own writers. But anyway... um, But tell us the optimism about VR. What makes you feel optimistic? So let me me do the optimistic thing. Um, Maybe I'll start with a very simple question. Is there such a thing as making a virtual reality system that's good enough for all time. You make goggles that are so good that they um, outpace the retina for a number of detectable points. Uh, you make uh, very high-quality sensors, and um, I won't go into the details since you haven't even tried it, but, but basically there are all these components. So, 
so some people say if you make all this stuff good enough, then you're done. You have a VR system that will fool people. But see, I think that's wrong because I think what happens is with each stage of development in VR, people get used to it and then their powers of perception increase mm-hmm. and stay ahead. So the thing is that pe- the big mistake we make, um, for better or for worse, and it goes both ways, is to think of ourselves as fixed quantities. The optimism we need to have in ourselves and the remarkable thing about people is our elasticity that we can grow and change, we can learn to perceive in new ways, we can become smarter with experience. So as you start to use the latest VR, you start to, you you get it, you know. Um, I have an 11-year-old daughter who's done a lot of VR and she's really not impressed anymore. And I think that's great, you know. Does she she stop doing it? No, she still enjoys it, but she's yeah, not impressed. Right. Like, there has to be some really beautiful or good design. The, the thing itself is really old to her. Mm. And I see this a lot with, v, with VR use, and I think that's actually a very positive quality. So what I think we have, in order, for our, in order to overcome the illusions of technology, we have to engage in it in such a way that we learn and grow and see through the illusions. Um, let's say, I'll compare it to magic. Virtual reality is kind of like a... Silicon version of stage magic, if you like. So one thing to say is that the difference between a charlatan and a magician is that the magician announces the trick. Uh, And social media has failed to announce its tricks. They're the charlatans. Yeah. One of the things I love about virtual reality is that there are these ugly, awkward headsets. They announce the trick. So this, this, this big thing on your head is the announcement it makes it ethical I, I really worry about it becoming some little thing where you might not realize it's there I think that might be unethical so Google Glasses is not yeah well it was started by my friend yes. who I sold the company with yeah Google Glass <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't like the Google Glass design. No. I think trying to make it disappear is ridiculous. It also doesn't work because, like, the more you're trying to hide it, the more it stands out like a pimple or something. It's like, oh, yeah, you're trying to hide that thing, but there's this thing on your face. It's ridiculous. Like, just wear the big, awkward thing. Look ugly. It's okay. And then, um, uh, but, but so the trick should be announced. But the other thing is, if you know how a trick works, you can still enjoy uh, a magician, right? Because there's an art to it. It's not so much that the, that knowing the trick is everything. It's it's the presentation, and VR should be the same way. Like uh, people have to become educated, and also uh, there could be something very similar to social media that doesn't have the perverse manipulation incentive at the core of it that could achieve all the good social media does without this horrible backlash that always comes afterwards. Um, this is all very doable, but it can't be done from a central planning station. You can't say, oh, Silicon Valley, fix this for us. I mean, the way this can work, it's just like with democracy. People have to take responsibility to become literate in a new way if they're going to use the technology at all. So for God's sakes, if you just can't find it in yourselves to delete all your social media accounts, then you must take it upon yourself to really learn how it works, learn how the addiction cycle works, learn how the manipulation works, become more aware of it. If you can't make one of those two choices, you're becoming a drone and you're not fully functioning as a citizen in the new world. And, and I mean, I, I, I have to be very blunt about that. Mm. Those are the choices available to you. There are no others. Do, do you worry, Jan, though, that... Do you worry that um, VR itself is also isolating? And can also... Because well, when I see my two children with their headsets on... You, wait, wait, you wonder, your well, kids have what? headsets and you've never tried this? Yes. I know this is embarrassing anyway, but I'm, you know, okay. we, can, we can take this outside, Joan, later. All right. um, 
But when I see my children and I wonder why aren't they outside playing with, you know, wooden train sets? I mean, they are 17 and 13, so possibly that's not that interesting. But, you know, I used to play with Lego with my mates. And they're sitting there playing whatever it is with their friends. But Can their I friends are an appeal there. to your kids? Yes. Will you give your dad a demo already? What yeah, is sure, the sure. deal yeah. here? <laughs> Let's okay. move on from my complete failure onto my kids. <laughs> yes, but, no. anyway, okay, no, but, I, but you know what I mean? It's this notion that you have great artistry in explaining... Uh-huh. Uh, how VR can touch us again with the notion of our artistry, and you yeah. touched on surrealism at the beginning of our talk. But is not VR itself, and also mixed reality, essentially isolating? Because you, you, you close the, the, the goggles that you can see, close yourself off. So I want to address that. Um, in the book, I describe how I early on had this completely electrifying, luminous. Um, realization that this could be this path to shared dreaming that I dreamed of uh, when I was in my early teens. And it was, it kept me going for a few years. Uh, And then I had exactly the opposite revelation. So how many of you have heard of Norbert Wiener? Okay, that's pretty good. So Norbert Wiener is one of the uh, first generation of computer scientists, possibly the first person to write well about computer science, even though it's, it, from the present perspective, it's a little dense and hard to get into, and his vocabulary and framework are a little difficult. But writing starting in the 40s, um, he was concerned with exactly the problem we have here of creating uh, control loops with computers that would manipulate people. One of his books is called The Human Use of Human Beings, which foresees this problem. At the end of it, he has this very comforting note that in order for this, the thing he's describing to actually be problematic, we'd have to have devices with us all the time that we'd interact with frequently that would provide us with some kind of feedback and they'd all have to attach to some kind of global information system, even without cables, uh, and that that was unfeasible. So this is purely (laughs) a thought experiment. And you read this from 1948 and it's it's, it's terrifying and tragic. So uh, what I realized is that if, if what we're concerned about is that you could use technology to put somebody inside a Skinner box or inside a behavior modification device, that would involve measuring the person and providing them with feedback. And what, by definition, is the technology that does the most precise measurements of what's going on with a person and provides the most comprehensive feedback? Why? It's exactly virtual reality. Mm-hmm. So what I realized is that th- this thing I looked forward to that I viewed as a kind of... Um, almost like an existential solution to my crisis, something of just profound beauty and importance to me, could also be the evilest invention of all time. Like, it it actually has both identities, and it continues to. And uh, unfortunately, the fiction of virtuality has been a a bit more attuned to this very valid negative possibility, and I'm thinking of, say, the Matrix movies as an example, but there are many other examples. Um, uh, we might also mention the feelies, mm. if you remember those. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 This whole this whole notion that people I'm trying will, to use uh, local references yeah, here. Pe- so. People will people <laughs> will choose to live in this VR world rather than to live and to tackle the real world around them. May they not? Well, I mean, what I hope is that. Um, so this gets back to this, this issue. If people are able to change and grow in response, then they'll stay ahead of the technology and they won't. But if they're, if they're addicted and they're put in a loop based on central control from somewhere else, then, then yes, we could have a very negative scenario. So what it all boils down to is where's the locus of control? Are you in charge of your own life or is there some central planner who's in charge of what you see, what you do? And right now, 
we've sort of tended to say, well, it's some Silicon Valley company, it's not a government, so that must make it okay. But the, the, the general structure is simply not acceptable, it's not survivable. So um, I, uh, virtual reality can go either way. The way I've been thinking about it lately is in a way we're quite lucky that we're facing these issues uh, during a period of, of kind of really crude digital technology. Because right now, I mean, what you get with social media or really anything you can get on your phone for the most part is really pretty crude. It's like a, uh, messages and pictures and, and videos um, and an occasional little VR thing on your phone that's very minimal because you can't really interact through it. So this is a super low-tech, crude version of, of digital interaction. And so it's not very intense yet, and it still is bad enough to disrupt um, the world's democracies. So what we, should, what we need to figure this out before it gets more intense. And if I may, I'd like to foresee a thought that I bet some people have, which is, if there's so much peril, why don't we turn away from it? Why are we going down this path? And here, there's a very good answer, which is we're compelled to. Um, from the earliest state that we started to make technology, from when we started making fires and, the, you know, and planting seeds, uh, every new technology has been absolutely essential in order for compassionate reasons so that there'd be fewer infant deaths, let's say. Um, and and yet, each one created its own new problems. And so once we go down this path, we're compelled to continue to improve. There's no way to just get to some static level of technology and say we're done. It just doesn't work that way. There's this constant um, sort of back and forth, a sort of a dialectic of technological advance, uh, advancement that you simply cannot withdraw from and survive. Um, and, and this business of having better digital communications, better way of visualizing complexity, better way of better ways of interacting is is compulsory. It's not it's not an option. So we have to figure out a way. And this this is an interesting question. That might not seem so to you, but uh, if anyone wants to argue about it, we can do it in question time. Yeah. So um, so we must go down this path, but we have to get ourselves. In, we have to remove the perverse incentives and try to come up with some structure that's survivable before it gets really intense. Can I just ask you a final question before, well, there's going to be one little interlude, which is going to be an unusual one, but before we get to questions as well, do you think that the Facebooks of this world, the Googles of the world, will get what you would suggest is their social responsibility to actually change? Or is it up to us to enforce that change on them. Mark Zuckerberg, or do you think he's, many people say, is not a bad person. Well, you know, I, I know some of the other early Facebook people like uh, Sean Parker and yeah. Peter Thiel, but I, I've never met Zuckerberg. So, but all my sense of him from... My, my indirect sense is that he's a perfectly nice person, so I, I, I would expect him. Uh, the, the only way for this sort of transition to happen is in concert. Everybody has to work together. So if, if Facebook just tells everybody, oh, from now on you're going to pay for your subscription, it won't work out some way you get paid, I think a lot of people would say, ah, you know, I think that would be... But if, if people want it at the same time that Facebook does it, there's a way to nudge the whole world together. I think that's feasible. And if you say, oh, no, that's, that's too hard, such a thing's never happened, I just want to remind you that very recently this hall would have been filled with cigarette smoke. Very recently the, the street outside would have been covered with litter. Very recently the world was different, and we all just decided to change it, and we did. This is something people can do. We've done it before. We can do it now. That's an optimistic note to finish on. So before I come to questions, now it's, it's not often I can, I, can, I can say this. You're not only um, a tech 
uh, an amazing tech thinker and also doer, but also you have been a goat herd at stage yes, in your life. Yes, that is true. Yes, and a midwife. A midwife's assistant. Oh, okay, not quite as good as That's a midwife, a, but not bad. A crucial distinction, believe me. And also, you are a great player of ancient instruments. And I believe, if I'm polite enough to you, you might be encouraged to play the Laotian mouth organ before this fabulous audience. Yes, that is correct. And, and, and you have indeed been sufficiently <laughs> Do you see the polite. Way I, I just segued into that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's this instrument I sometimes like. I, I like to play music when I'm, uh, I do public events. And this one um, is generally a pretty effective one, and I can get it on carry-on, which is important these days. So, okay. Yeah, this now, is called... Is a, is, 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 does someone... I, I don't know if this is the size of a bus or the size of a small... Um, um, I haven't played this either, just like VR. I haven't done that, so that's another thing I haven't done. Where, where does this thing come from? Laos. 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 No, I mean on the stage, not necessarily which country. <laughs> there it is. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. That chair is called Laos. <laughs> so I think they want this set up so it's not uh, the camera angle isn't blocking you. Pull it back a little, is that good? All right. Just a quick break to say a big thanks to Gantt for supporting this podcast. Look out for their new series called Couple Thinkers, which features former Late Late Show presenter Craig Ferguson and his wife Megan. They've set out to meet a range of really interesting people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Ariana Huffington and John Ronson to get their questions answered about anything from the cosmos and sustainability to the science of ageing and getting the right work-life balance. You can check it out on gantt.com forward slash couple thinkers and YouTube. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Questions? <laughs> Gentlemen here. We'll start with, sorry, I'm shouting, but I got a bit overexcited with the old mouth open. There is, a, there is a microphone coming down. Can we get some microphones down here? That'd be great. Oh, it's number three. We'll start, we'll start up this end because we've got someone at number three. Yeah, let's go there. Yeah, hi, Jaron. Um, I mean, it's really interesting. I, I suppose my, uh, my question is, given some of the, I won't say paranoia, but I think just some of the practicalities around what you're talking around in terms of social media, how far down the rabbit hole do you think we're going to end up going with the introduction of quantum computing? And how far away do you think that is? <laughs> Oh, God, a quantum computing question. Um, I feel this might exclude some people in the audience, but um, <clears throat> what we're ta- does everybody know what we're talking about? So there's a kind of computer that was uh, formalized by Turing. Uh, once again, local reference. Uh, and uh, it, it's... Uh, it, that that abstraction describes every computer you've used, your phone and everything else. But there's this other sort of a computer that could exist that uses the principles of quantum uh, effects. And um, the, uh, the, way this, the way this works, let's say you have a bunch of particles and each of them might be one way or another way. They have different properties like spin and stuff. Uh, there's only a probability that some combination of those properties will be true provided they're connected together in a certain, the particles are connected in a certain way. And what, but the number of probabilities is uh, very large because there's one probability for each possible combination. And so if you're very, very tricky, you can actually use that extended set of probabilities as a new kind of computer memory. But you have to be very tricky indeed. But hypothetically, we might be able to build these things so that we can perform much more elaborate computations because there's all this extra memory from this range of probabilities. It's a very strange idea. Um, There are a lot of different ideas about how to do it. Google's doing this one where they put a bunch of uh, quantum bits together and they all kind of find their way to a balance together, which is called a... Oh, never mind. I won't go into that. And we're doing this other one where we get them to tie... At Microsoft, we're doing this one where we get them to tie little knots together. uh, So it's uh, logically... Anyway, there are all these different ways to do it. Um, It might be able to do crazy stuff like solve problems that are currently inaccessible, break codes, that are, you know, all kinds of stuff. Wait a few years to see if this thing is really working. I mean, like, I, it's kind of exciting right now. A lot of the basics are starting to work. Um, does it have anything to do with virtual reality? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll, <laughs> I'm sure we can make really interesting virtual worlds with it. I'm sure we can make all kinds of fantastic things. It's, it's just a bit early. I, you know, what I found with technology is that there's some visions you can have far in advance, and then there's other ways that the particulars present themselves as you get closer. And I think with quantum stuff, we've all been talking about it for decades. There's all these fantastic predictions. We're getting so close to getting some sense of the particulars that I think we should just shut up now and find out what it's actually like to the degree we can get it to work. We're very close to having some answers. But it basically just 
um, boosts computer power hugely if it, if it could be made to work. I mean, I, I interviewed well, it, Satya Nadella here, and he said that quantum, quantum computing was one of the big things that Microsoft would be pushing on because it could end that kind of Moore's Law rule that we've been living with for so long and actually change substantially the power of computing yeah, in yeah. terms of creating. It, it might, but it's, it'll be very quirky. It won't make every kind of computation faster. It'll be very quirky, particular ones. And so there's a, it'll have a very particular quality. Or right. that's, I think that's the most likely outcome. Yeah. Okay. Question data? Hi. So assuming that our staggering level of incompetence continues and that we're not able to correct the systems currently in play, what does the decline look like and what is the safest sort of route for an individual to take to try and navigate it? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a rather dark question. Um, <laughs> I will point out that many of the wealthiest and most powerful people in Silicon Valley routinely, like if we're just meeting, they'll say some horrible things. One of them is, so have you got that backup plan in New Zealand together? And... Um, I'm like, no, we can't go to New Zealand. Like, our responsibility is to stay here and make this work. Like, uh, New Zealand is a fine place, but that's that we can't treat it as some kind of escape hatch. Um, so, uh, I, um, we must make this work. I don't know how difficult or horrible the path towards it will be. Uh, for the moment, the trolls are winning. Uh, for the moment, the trolls have destabilized my country terribly. Uh, but I want to point out that we have faced much more difficult problems in the past and come through. You know, like, for all the problems we face now, at least so far, I mean, I don't know where this will go. It could get worse, of course. I would imagine it might, just because of the way things go, it's likely to get worse before it gets better. But would it get as bad as, I don't know, World War II? I don't, I don't think so, and we made it through that, right? So... Um, I'm not optimistic in the sense that problems will be easy and that no one will be hurt and that it will be a breeze and all we have to do is just suddenly have the right idea and the problem... I don't think it's like that. I think we're actually facing a real difficulty. Um, my sense is that there are a handful of techie problems this century that will be very hard to solve that we simply must solve. So climate change, carbon footprint is one of them. Um, nuclear prol proliferation is another one. Uh, dangerous of biotech is another one. And this is another one of those. So we have multiple ones, which makes it harder to deal with each one individually. And yet we must. We simply must. I mean, I, I simply won't entertain the thought that we won't. We will, period. That's it. We'll do it. But I think it'll be difficult. Someone at the back there? Is there someone, did you say, is there someone there? Oh, oh I, no, sorry. I, I have, thought. oh. Yeah. Sorry, Sorry I, I was giving the mic. Hi. Um, how do you think virtual reality should regulate acts in real life that would be illegal, such as rape or snuff or paedophilia? Yeah. Um, I. Um, this is a really this is a really tricky one. Um, uh, a friend of mine in uh, in the states just um, put out a movie where at the end all these characters eat a baby. You probably know what I'm talking about. And I was like, "You made a movie where people eat, ate a baby. What are you doing?" And and he's saying, "No, it's a metaphor for how we're mistreating the earth." And I said, "Okay, so um, there, it's the difficulty with media is that context is everything. And although it might be hard to construct." Um, 
I'm a little concerned about creating specific prohibitions on things because we don't know how to describe what we're really talking about that should be prohibited. And yet at the same time, um, oh God, in this, I have to say something, which is that our particular tech culture has been kind of overrun, largely, I think, because of the phenomena I was, discuss- I was discussing just now. I think it's been quite overrun with a kind of... Um, um, this sort of crude and um, uh, reductionist and sort of um, um, insecure version of masculinity that I really reject, that, that we see in things like the, um, well, Gamergate, if you know what that is, uh, and I think it's turned into the alt-right. And it, it's, uh, I think what it is is it's what happens to masculinity when it's being manipulated by a behavioral modification loop. You become like really nervous and kind of paranoid and kind of like jittery. And it's um, also known sometimes as the snowflake persona. And there's... Um, I think we see it in our president in America. We see it in college students and kids sometimes. It's, just, it's the personality outcome. But anyway, since that's become so powerful, um, I am very strongly tempted to, to reject my impulse to not try to regulate and say, no, actually right now, maybe just in this circumstance we should because playing with this stuff is too dangerous. And I have to tell you, you've asked a hard question that I struggle with every day. I think it is a really tricky one. I've seen some things in virtuality that um, I don't think should have been there. Um, uh, one of them was sprung on my daughter once in a way that was truly offensive and damaging and and uh, and, and uh, just on, on some service that somebody had done in a sort of a sadistic way, and I, I feel very uh, upset about it. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it, this is a really tricky thing. I, I do believe quite strongly that um, the first duty is to fix the incentives rather than regulate. So if you ask, why are, all the, why are there all these horrible, like, terrorism videos and whatnot on YouTube? Why is there all, this, all the, uh, false, the fake news, which I prefer to call shitposting, which is the term of art used by the people who pay for it? Is, can I say that here? You're not sad, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> sorry. But it is actually the term of art. That's what it's called. Um, and, um, uh, and the thing is, it's because the underlying incentive structure is for uh, so-called engagement and um, evil engages, you know. It just does. If you're scared if you're offended, if you're worried about your kids, if you're worried about your partner, these things really engage you, so therefore they're selected for. So I do believe that if the incentive was changed, that would at least be a first line of defense to reduce the, the, the occurrences of these things. Um, uh, I, have, I am not a researcher in this particular field, but I have friends who've studied this question of whether uh, violent video games or pornography, et cetera, um, tend to uh, have an, uh, what effect they have on behavior subsequently. And what's really interesting is that it's not a simple answer. With people who seem to have certain pre-existing um, uh, situations, it can, it can lead to worse and worse behavior. And we've, unfortunately, since we also have a gun culture in the U.S., we've seen horrible, horrible outcomes from that. Um, in other cases, it seems to be just a sort of a, a strange um, aesthetic thing for a person that doesn't really correspond to behavioral changes. Um, just like people who like horror movies or, or you know, and, and so the, pro- so, um, 
Anyway, you've asked a very difficult question. I'm, Can I'm, I ask I'm, a bit? Uh, that that, that yeah. question obviously came from quite a lot. What's your thought on, on how the, the technology, the social media technology world deals with some of those issues? Uh, not, not very well, but I, I've only used VR a couple of times. So, but my hunch is, and, and the research I've seen in relation to, um, I don't think it was the NSPCC, but other related companies that look at paedophilia or entities that look at paedophilia have shown it does... It isn't a, uh, a way for paedophiles to let out what they need to let out. It encourages it by normalising it. So I suspect that tech culture and governments will respond too late to this and that it will be a problem, yeah. Because it, it is, as you say, yeah. a very difficult thing to regulate. Yeah, this is a... Oh, yeah, this, one's a, this is a big, a big issue. I, I mean, I thank you for raising where, it. I wish I had this the... issue Because there is this issue of masculinity in Silicon Valley yeah. and that the place is run or... Lots, large parts of Silicon Valley are run by a certain type of uh, uh, masculine character, bullying, misogynistic sometimes, and it has led to um, a development of, a, of certain types of content. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, and um, it's one of the worst things. I mean, I really... Uh, what well, do you put it down to, that, it has, that Silicon Valley is such a male-dominated... Well... <sighs> I think it has a little bit to do with um, the technology being so closely aligned with a certain kind of obsessive cognitive and, and, and insecure cognitive style. Um, I, I, I hate to say it this way because I don't want it to ref reflect poorly on people on the spectrum, but it does have like a little toe in the spectrum and there's a, there's a kind of an oversimplification of the world. Um, and, uh, yikes. It's hard stuff. Yeah. Before that. Hi. Uh, first of all, thanks for the talk. It's very informative. Uh, you talked a lot about uh, manipulation of behavior, and you share your anxieties about centralization of content or idea, whether the authority is state or corporate. But I feel like, and do correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's a sense of individualization of a problem that is fundamentally systemic because the solutions you propose, which are, I'm in no way, saying, in no way am I saying they're bad because like individuals should be aware about these things. We should maybe turn off or like pay, like spend uh, less time on social media and, you know, take the initiative to change our, to change our behavior. But how, how much of these is possible without challenging fundamentally the, the logic of, say, the economy. Because I think the most systemic of solutions that you have proposed is sort of, in, in a way, extending the market model through the whole internet, monetizing it, as you say. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't challenge the, the logic, fundamentally, that you need to make profit. And what, say, Facebook do, they, the algorithm is designed in a way to, like, for ad revenues or whatever, like, they, they need these ways to generate profit that sustains their business and without challenging how businesses work just broadening it and having more actors can can is that strong enough to like prevent the wave of monopolization from happening and is that really a sustainable solution well you know what happened i feel that our period now is somewhat similar to the gilded ages of the late 19th century and early 20th century that unfortunately preceded world wars, where there was an untenable concentration of uh, 
monopoly, wealth, and influence. Uh, in that case, around things like railroads and resource, natural resources, and uh, so transportation resources. And in our case, it's around information services. And eventually, after these horrible wars, we ended up with a regime that created this comfortable period of improved circumstances for a vast number of people. And it included uh, a regulatory part, which was uh, antitrust and other things. And it, it, it included social programs. It included a, just societal change and uh, widespread education, all kinds of things. Some kind of, I, you know, some kind of multivalent program of that kind ought to be able to um, come to pass beyond this. That's much better. Um, uh, so uh, I don't believe that monetizing the Internet by itself would be some sort of panacea that would solve everything. I just think that if you have such, if you have a monopoly of perverse intentions at the core, no amount of regulation or correction is going to undo that. That's just the first step that you have to take. Um, so I view it as a first step, not a last step. Um, and uh, I... I really believe it actually would be better for everybody. This isn't an attack on the companies. I think, it's, I think we need big tech companies. I actually really like big tech companies, but I think this would make them better. I think this would make them more sustainable, and it would be more positive for everybody involved. Number one. Uh, you may have answered this, but we regulate addictive drugs. We regulate addictive services like gambling do you think we should regulate addictive algorithms? Yeah, and you know, the good thing in this case is that we can define them more clearly. Um, basically, if there is a feedback route from measurement of you that affects the so-called customized or whatever feed, um, and if anybody can pay to influence that, that is precisely the thing to outlaw. So I think we can, we can detect it, we, and I, I think it should be outlawed. I mean, we can't do it instantly because we need to give everybody a chance to come up with other ways of doing things. But I think, it, I think that's where we should end up. I think that that's, that's a for fun... Governments to do. That's for government to do. Well, I think um, by whatever means, presumably government, it might vary in different parts of the world, but, but that should be, co be considered an immoral and unethical configuration. That should not exist. Number two. Um, you, you talked briefly about your, your sort of childhood and stuff. What I wanted to know was, um, how did you first get into computing and what was the technology you, you, you were first working with? And Jan, can I just ask one more over here? Yep, one more there, just quickly. Yep. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um, take the, the conversation back to virtual reality as experienced through the goggles and this sort of the, the magician's trick being announced. How do you see that evolving in the future because at present all virtual rea reality is kind of authored it's finite in its duration um you kind of have a sort of short or however long experience of it um and it's sort of uh, limited by people's ability to program and the perceptual reality kind of varies depending on how sophisticated that is so where does this go in the future how does this become your solution okay early computers first and then Early where's computers. VR going? What did, you, what, did you, uh, what did you learn on? The first computer I used, I built, um, which was a really simple thing when I was a kid. As it happens, where I grew up was close to White Sands Missile Range, where the atomic bomb was first tested. And so there was an incredible early computer science department at the university nearby, which was a really unusual and extraordinary stroke of luck. I describe all this in the book, if you want to get it. Uh, and I... Uh, 
my early, my early programming experience was punching these cards. You'd feed these punched cards to the computer, and then in the desert winds, you would try to hold on to your cards, but instead they'd fly everywhere, and your program would be dissipated, never to be seen again. And then the computers were actually pretty slow, so you could fake it and pretend that the computer had run in order to fake your result, and so we'd have to do that. Uh, so that was my first experience with computing. Um, and then on... On the VR thing, yeah, this is, you know, I kind of regret that we didn't do more on VR specifically, but it just seems that these, that all of these other issues are so urgent in our times that they demand immediate discussion. So in terms of VR, um, everything you said is correct. Um, I can give you a few models though that you might want to look at. Um, have you seen something called Second Life? Uh, so this is an online, this was a big deal before the iPhone. It didn't transfer to the small screen, so it kind of lost its currency. But this was a sort of an online virtual world that thousands of people could be in, and they all designed their own virtual places, and they bought and sold stuff, so it had an economy, as I discussed. Full disclosure, I was involved in it, so I'm probably biased. It wasn't perfect. Sometimes people behave badly, but not as badly as in some other forums. Like, we never had an ISIS, like, place there. We never had, we never had, like, a... I, I don't know. I mean, like, it wasn't as bad as what happens. And uh, um, and uh, if, you, if you look at that sort of a model, I think the crucial, crucial thing is to get away from thinking of virtual reality as this thing you download that then is this packaged experience. It's a live thing. Um, one of my disappointments in the current batch of stores for virtual reality content is they're based on sort of video or game content where you download this thing and then you run it. It should be more like a cross between uh, like Skype and a costume ball. Like what should happen is there should be a live real-time thing with people who are skilled performers, who are sort of like the dungeon masters or puppeteers, who are good at making things happen. They should be able to make a living, by the way. And it's really all about person-to-person. It's live. It's real-time. I think a canned virtual reality experience is almost never even slightly interesting. I, I really think they... because they all kind of get the same after a while. And I think we've seen the consequences of that. Um, I won't go, this is a whole big thing, but I think there's a misunderstanding in the industry of what makes virtual reality magical. And the way it's being done now isn't human-centric enough. It's a little bit too much of like canned content. And that's just due to the habits of the tech industry, which are bad habits. Can, they, can we break out of that? Yeah, yeah. Give I us mean, a final, we're up to time sadly, but give us a final notion of where VR can go in, in, in that optimistic sense. You've talked a lot about, you've been asked a lot about the darker sides and the, the pro- possibilities of oh, problems. God. But where it, can it go to connect with human beings? It turns out that humans are capable of taking on different bodies because our brain remembers all the different bodies it used to control over hundreds of millions of years in evolution. So it's really quite flexible. It's quite plastic. So you could turn into some, fast, some fantastic alien spider but more than that, you can turn into some crazy alien spider that's actually two people at once so you can oh I don't know you could join with a lover say and jointly control this alien spider and then you have to coordinate your bodies to become like one creature for the first time which is a form of connection that's quite profound and has never been available before and you get better and better at it it doesn't get old it's not like just a little novelty it's like a, a thing that just cries out for practice and for achieving virtuosity and you can do that and um it's really an extraordinary treat, and it's all yours. It's not served at you from some stupid Russian hacker paying some company. So I think this, this kind of beauty, this kind of profundity is available, and I hope you all get to experience it, you especially. I'm going to do it straight away. Darren Lanier, thank you very much.
Uh, thank you very much to Intelligence Squared. Thank you to you, uh, the audience. Um, Jaron's new book, The Dawn of the New Everything, is available outside. Do go and buy it and be inspired. And the story of the rat stabbing is also in there. Thank you, Jaron. <laughs> Hi, this is Paul Rust from the With Gorley and Rust podcast. I'm here to tell you about Shudder. Looking for a good scare? Come experience what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise, and what Roger Ebert says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Discover content that covers the entire horror spectrum on Shudder. Stream anticipated new releases like Superhost, Seance starring Suki Waterhouse, and the Boulet Brothers' Dragula. Plus, don't miss out on Creep Show, Slasher Flesh and Blood, and other must-see exclusives you won't find anywhere else. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on, sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder. So good, it's scary. <laughs> 